Welcome to this edition of Code Talk, the concise podcast to help you get to know the National Electrical Code. I'm your host, Frank Seiler, based in Spokane, Washington, and today's episode is about surge arrest and surge protection. The 2020 NEC renamed this as overvoltage protection and reformatted the requirements into a new article, Article 242. Our episode is based on the 2020 edition, so if you're following along in the 2017 or prior editions, you're going to find that this article uh, has been combined out of Article 280, Surge Arresters, and Article 285, Surge Protective Devices. The information is somewhat the same, but the reformatting, of course, would mean that where you find the information is going to be in different places. In the 2020 NEC, it was... Uh, decided that it was better to have them in the same article because there's a bit of crossover, and you'll see that as we go along. Part one, of course, is general, and it includes the scope of overvoltage protection, general requirements, installation, and connection thereof. Part two covers surge protective devices permanently installed on premises wiring systems of not more than a thousand volts, and part three covers surge arresters permanently installed on-premise wiring systems over a 1,000 volts. 240.3 has a, a list of items, a list of equipment that shall be protected against overvoltage in accordance with the specific article that that equipment is found in. So that's a, a very sensible thing if you want to know, okay, which particular equipment requires surge protection or overvoltage protection. There's a, a long laundry list. But when you look at it, they all make sense. Right? Class 1 and 2 locations, explosive atmospheres. Community antenna television and radio distribution systems, Article 820. Um, that's coax cable coming from the outside, outside utility provider coming into the structure. Critical operations power systems, Article 708. Those are ones that have to have uh, additional measures so that the electrical system remains active, remains up during times of man-made or natural disasters. Elevators, dumbwaiters, escalators, moving walks, platforms, lifts, and stairway chairlifts. The control mechanisms for those require surge protection, Article 620. Emergency systems, right? These are life safety systems, Article 700. They require surge protection. Some equipment over 1,000 volts, and Article 490 does as well. Fire pumps, Article 695. Of course, we want the controller for the fire pump not to give out in a time of need. Industrial machinery. Quite often that's built right into the machinery, so it's going to be a Type 4, Class 4 protection, Article 645. Modular data centers, Article 646. Outdoor overhead conductors over 1,000 volts coming into a structure, again, require surge arrest, Article 399. Radio and TV equipment, outside lead-in antenna cables coming in, could be struck by lightning. We want to have a surge protective device on them, Article 810. 
There's a permission for receptacles and cord connectors and attachment plugs to also contain surge protective devices. That's usually going to be a type 3 or a type 4. Article 406 covers those. And then wind electric systems. Well, we're sticking a, a tower into the air, which uh, doubles as a lightning rod. So yes, we want a surge protective device at the base of that tower. So those are all logical places. We also have some other requirements. For example, one and two family dwelling unit panel boards shall have a type two surge protective device installed. And that is not to protect your big screen TV. That's to protect your investment in electronic breakers, arc fault and GFCI breakers that are contained within the panel board. Part two of this article is entitled Surge Protective Devices, SPDs, 1,000 volts or less. There's an informational note that said surge arresters, 1,000 volts or less, are also known as Type 1 SPDs. NEMA, that's the National Electrical Manufacturers Association, has uh, quite a bit of information on surge protective devices. And one of the things that they have is uh, a definition. A surge protective device, SPD, is a protective device for limiting transient voltages by diverting or limiting surge current and is capable of repeating these functions as specified. SPDs were previously known as transient voltage surge suppressors, TVSSs, or secondary surge arresters, SSA. So over time, the terminology in the industry has changed. The way these items are listed has changed, which is why it got a rewrite in our National Electrical Code. And uh, so that provides a little bit of background to the terminology that perhaps you and I are still using out in the field. I, uh, I have a hard time breaking away from things that I once learned. Article 242.6 is entitled, Use is Not Permitted. Where can't we put a surge protective device? Well, surge protective devices may not be installed in circuits over 1,000 volts. Those are surge arresters. And on ungrounded systems, unless they're specifically listed for it. But generally, you need to have a grounded system. In most cases, a surge protective device shunts to the neutral. And if the neutral doesn't have a grounding connection, we have no way of equalizing overvoltage. Um, in some cases, it'll shunt to the ground. Again, an ungrounded system, you, uh, you don't have that connection readily available. There are some specialty SPDs that are designed for those particular applications, but they have to be listed for it. 242.8 says an SPD shall be a listed device. So it can't be just recognized. It has to be listed. In some cases, it's going to be listed for a particular purpose. One example would be that if you have a specific type breaker plug-on type SPD, it may be listed for a particular panel or bus style. In that case, you can't transfer that to a different panel or bus style. It is not listed for that specific purpose. If it's something that's aftermarket that bolts onto the side, typically the panel board doesn't matter at that point. 242.10 tells us that the short circuit current rating of the SPD must be equal to or be better than the available fault current that is available at the equipment. That kind of makes sense. If we have a clamping fault inside of the SPD, surge protective device, and the fault current that the 
source circuit is able to deliver is higher than that, our, our search protective device might turn into a hand grenade, and that's not a good thing. We want it to hold together. It may let out some smoke in the process. Right? After, a, after a large surge, it's not uncommon for an SPD to no longer be functional. If it has to dissipate more heat than it's designed for, we're going to blow something up inside of it. But that's part of the process. It has indicator lights to tell us that, yes, I'm still in good order. I'm, I'm, I'm still able to take another hit. But once those lights turn red or those lights turn off, it's time to replace that surge protective device. Now, what can cause surges? Well, there, there are various sources. Large voltage spikes or large transients are caused by utility line switching, power factor correction capacitors that are brought online, or perhaps lightning events. Typically, those are outside of the facility and they ingress into the equipment through the service entrance connection. There are also smaller voltage spikes. Smaller voltage spikes can be produced by reactive loads inside of the facility. Uh, something as small as a laser printer, a copier, imaging and resin printing machinery can cause small transients that are in the hundreds of volts category rather than the thousands of volts. And at the circuit level, a surge protective device is going to protect our sensitive electronic equipment against those. A lack of surge protection, on the other hand, lets these transients ride through, and they might be a voltage spike that is very brief, you know, sometimes just milliseconds long. However, that elevated voltage has the ability to push current, right? Voltage is electrical pressure in the system, and so if there's a very brief elevated voltage, it can also push a very brief elevated current and fry whatever is in, in between. If it can't dissipate the heat, it will lose its insulation value. Article 100 also has a definition of surge protective devices, a protective device for limiting transient voltages by diverting or limiting surge current. And then it adds this, it also prevents continued flow of follow current while remaining capable of repeating these functions. And there are four types of surge protective devices, and these are listed or designed for different locations in the circuit. So 242.12 starts listing these different types. Type 1, permanently connected, intended for installation between the secondary of the service transformer and the line side of the service disconnecting device or the service equipment. So a Type 1 requires no overcurrent protection, and it's going to be on the utility side of the meter, essentially. The only one that I'm familiar with is one that actually is a meter ring insert, so it's this, this thick meter ring that goes in between the meter base and then the utilities meter that gets installed, plugged in, and it has the ability to limit that kind of surge current. So that's a type 1 device. Type 1 devices shall be permitted to be connected in accordance with either one or two. One, to the supply side of the service disconnect. Well, if we're on the supply side of the service disconnect, what do we have available to us? We have two hots and a neutral. Guess where it shunts the overvoltage to? To the neutral. Or we could treat it as a type 2, and 242.14 gives us that permission. We could put it after overcurrent protection, but that's not a requirement for type 1. However, type 2 
does have the requirement for overcurrent protection. It, however, needs no wire length. It doesn't need any way to limit the amount of surge current by adding a certain length of wire to add impedance to the system. It can be right on the bus. Back to the Type 1. Type 1 surge protective devices shall be connected either to the grounded surface conductor, that's the neutral, or the grounding electrode conductor. They you know, perform the same contact point in this case. The grounding electrode for the service or the equipment grounding terminal in the service equipment, which is also where the neutral lands. Type 2 SPDs, again, permanently connected. However, they have to be on the load side of the service disconnect overcurrent device. They need overcurrent protection on them. According to NEMA, their main purpose is to protect sensitive electronics and microprocessor-based loads against residual lightning energy, motor-generated surges, and other internally generated surge events. So type 2 would be the type that can go right on the bus bar of a panel board. It has overcurrent protection, but it needs no wire length. Where we connect the, the uh, conductors to, pretty much the same. The conductors can take their power straight off the bus bar, or they can come off of a breaker. And then it's going to be connected to the neutral bus in the panel board. There are permissions to do some different installations, but typically an SPD shunts to the neutral. Now there are some additional notes on type two SPDs. All right, they're connected on the load side of service equipment, and they can be anywhere in the structure, but they shall be connected at the building or structure anywhere on the load side of the first overcurrent device at the building or structure. And if there are conductors involved, there's no minimum conductor length, but shorter and more direct is better. We want to un avoid unnecessary bends. We don't want to do loop-de-loops. Uh, just remember, lightning doesn't like a roller coaster ride. It likes to follow straight lines. Now, if a breaker is employed, it is only there to provide short circuit and ground fault protection. So you really want to look at the documentation with this device. It's not uncommon to have 10 gauge leads on the surge protective device, an aftermarket device, and then instructions to put it on perhaps a 40 or a 50 ampere breaker. That breaker is not there to provide overload protection. In fact, if you were to undersize the breaker, when the SPD is in clamping mode, that is getting rid of a surge current for you, an overvoltage, if the breaker is size too small, it'll trip too early and your surge protector doesn't do its job. So if, uh, if the wire size seems odd to you, take a look at the documentation. If a surge protective device is located in a separately derived system, that is perhaps it's generator fed, where the transfer switch also switches the neutral, or we're going through a, a step-down transformer and the secondary of that is a fully isolated secondary, then it tells us that an SPD shall be connected on the load side of the first overcurrent device in a separately derived system. That's a type two again. A type one, technically, if you wanted to, you could put between the transformer and generator and the first overcurrent device. But a type two needs overcurrent protection. Then we have type three, type three surge protective devices. These are identified as point of utilization surge protective devices. And they have some limitations. 
usually they're in the form factor of a receptacle, which means that they don't have a lot of room or space to pack a lot of uh, uh, protective gear into the receptacle. It's kind of limited that way. So one of the things that a receptacle will do is utilize the damping effect, that is the higher impedance of the conductors between the source and the receptacle, to drive down the amount of surge and fault current. So according to NEMA, point of utilization SPDs must be installed at a minimum conductor length of 10 meters or 30 feet from the electrical service panel to the point of utilization. And these can be either cord and plug connected or direct plug-in and receptacle type SPDs. So those are type 3. Now, again, think about where a surge protective device shunts to. You might want to ask yourself the question, if I plug a plug strip in on a knob and tube wired house that perhaps has a uh, GFCI protected receptacle circuit, so I do have a ground prong, Will a surge protective device work? And the answer is yes, because it has the ability to shunt over voltage to the neutral, the grounded conductor. And even in knob and tube wiring, you have the grounded conductor. Now, I'm sure you've been at one of the big box stores and seen the, uh, the big wall of all of the different plug strips and surge protective devices that are built into them and the various guarantees that are offered, insurance that's offered to... Uh, you know, make sure that your sensitive electronic equipment doesn't go kaput. And, and that's good. And so you might wonder, well, what's in one of these plug strips? And uh, first of all, you get what you pay for. That's, that should be, should be obvious. And of course, there are some uh, not-so-good players in the market as well. So do your research. However, if you pop one of these open, what will you find? And so sometimes as you do your research, they will... You know, different websites, manufacturers, they will gladly show you the insides, the guts of their particular plug strip. And the more components you have, the, the, the better it is. These, these are not usually not fake components. So what's the first thing that one would look for? Well, kind of the workhorse of a surge protective device in any flavor is going to be something that at normal voltages doesn't conduct and then as the voltage raises up beyond a certain level beyond a dangerous level becomes conductive those devices are known as movs stands for metal oxide varistors and what these are able to do is become conductive above a certain surge voltage so for example if you order an mov it will give you an ohm value and a voltage value that voltage value is the clamping voltage now, you have to remember that the clamping voltage, when it starts to exceed that, is the peak-to-peak -peak voltage of the sine wave, not the RMS voltage. Right? So if uh, you have something that is um, rated, say, 500 volts, 350 ohms, the clamping will start not at 500 volts. That's That would be the peak value. So your meter for 500 volts would actually read 353 volts. That is the RMS value. When we describe voltages in systems, we use the RMS value. Right? The, um, what if you took the voltage, the AC voltage, and turned it into DC without any losses? What would it be? That's, that's the RMS value. That's one way to, to describe it. And so 
Your 120-volt receptacle, that's an RMS value, has a voltage of about 170 volts, peak to peak. If we have a 500-volt rated metal oxide varistor, then it will start clipping or clamping if our nominal voltage exceeds 353 volts. You take the nominal voltage, your RMS voltage, and divide it by 0.707. That's half of the root of 2, and that will get you your peak-to-peak -peak voltage. So just be aware of that. For some that I tried to replace or protect a, a system with MOVs, I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> I turned the circuit on and the MOVs went poof because I sized them too tightly. The peak-to-peak -peak voltage was higher than what the MOV was rated for. Anyway, metal oxide varistors, they will start clamping and then they will have the resistance that's marked on there. And of course, they become a heater at that point. So as long as they can dissipate that amount of heat, you will be successful at clamping the brief over-voltage. If it exceeds for too long a time, then the MOV heats up to the point where it lets out all the smoke, right? So MOVs, that's the main workhorse. As it's clamping, it will draw more current. And so one of the things that you will find in an SPD as well is ways of regulating current. What you're going to have is probably some large heavy-duty ferrite rod core inductors. So it's an iron core that's wrapped with some heavy wire, at least comparatively heavy to the other electronics in the circuit. And what that will do is as the MOV is clamping, it's drawing a large amount of current briefly. However, the ferrite core will have a magnetic field that expands and then immediately collapses as the sine wave disappears. And in doing so, adds a lot of ohm value to the circuit. And that really extends the life of the MOV by kind of limiting the circuit. It's, it's like the ballast in an old-style ballasted fixture. You will also find some capacitors that remove noise and interference. Right? A capacitor has the ability to briefly absorb a charge, and then when the voltage ebbs away, gives it back. You will also have some other things like, like toroidal chokes, again, to remove noise and interference, that are there as you've got some voltage spikes that are being filtered out. Some of them also include some thermal fuses, some self-resetting fuses. I know that sounds like a, a non-thing, but in this case, they, they are. A fail-safe thermal fuse has a material inside of it that melts at very low temperatures. And when it's in the molten state, it's highly resistive. And when it solidifies, it carries current again. All right, so all of these are components that you might find in a surge protective device. And in conjunction, as a whole, they can offer a large amount of protection. Individually, each one of those components is limited. But as a whole, they offer a large amount of protection. So the, the more of this kind of equipment that you have, right, you're going to look for MOVs, ferrite rod inductors. You're going to look for some capacitors. You're going to look for some toroidal cores in there. If you see all of those things... That's a pretty good surge protected device. Now, if you have that in a plug strip, that's great. When you see it in a plug strip and then you go, hmm, that'll never fit into a receptacle. And you're, you're right. Receptacles can be much more limiting. So the last one, the last type is a type four. And type four are usually component assemblies that are installed inside of the equipment by the manufacturer. Uh, I can think of a few examples. For example, I have a freak drive in my classroom. And if I take the cover off the freak drive, 
and I look just past where the line voltage comes in. Guess what you find? Absolutely. A set of metal oxide varistors and some choke coils. All right. right there, the manufacturer has built some surge protection right into the electronics of the freak drive, right where it receives its power supply. Now, where can we place surge protective devices generally? 242.22 says SPDs shall be permitted to be located indoors or outdoors, but shall be made inaccessible to unqualified persons unless listed for installation in accessible locations. So for some of the higher voltage systems, SPDs are going to be behind uh, or inside cabinetry that the average person isn't going to easily have access to. Routing of connections, 242.24. Well, that's kind of a logical thing. Again, Lightning doesn't like to do loop-de-loops. So, the conductors used to connect the SPD to the line or bus and to ground shall not be any longer than necessary and shall avoid any unnecessary bends. The conductor size. So, for an SPD, the smallest conductor size shall be 14-gauge copper. If it comes with its own leads, it comes with its own leads. It's already taken care of. But if we had to field wire something in, a 15-amp circuit or 14-gauge wire would be the smallest that it could be. It also has a permission in 242.30 to provide surge protection between conductors. So an SPD shall be permitted to be connected between any two conductors, ungrounded conductors, grounded conductors, and the equipped grounding conductor. And quite often you will find that a, an aftermarket SPD will have leads for all of those. So if there's a difference of voltage between the components, it can also provide a way of uh, you know, making sure that the overvoltage gets, gets capped in the best way possible. That brings us to the last part of this article, Part 3, Surge Arresters. And if we recall, surge arresters operate at over 1,000 volts, and in many cases... They are uh, not, not clearly visible, not easily visible. If you've got a transformer on a pole and you look up, there might be something that looks like a long insulator, and that's, that's probably going to be the surge arrestor. You'll be able to identify it by seeing that it has the hot connection on one side, and then on the other side it has a connection to ground, connection to earth. Surge arresters are typically clamping to earth. They can clamp amongst the phase conductors as well, but typically surge arresters clamp to earth. So under uses permitted, it says a surge arrestor shall not be installed where the rating of the surge arrestor is less than the maximum continuous phase to ground voltage. So it's not based on line to line voltage, it's based on phase to ground voltage. Because surge arresters are usually individual devices, if we have a, an exterior installation on a pole, that might be three phase, you're going to see three or more separate surge protective devices. And you know, they, they get grouped together as one protective system. Surge arresters shall be permitted to be located either indoors or outdoors, however, 242.46 says that they must be made inaccessible to unqualified persons. 
So typically where you find them is either up on, on a pole, right? By height, it becomes inaccessible, or it might be inside of a transformer or a sectionalizer cabinet that the utility controls. It has a penta key on it. So again, an average person isn't able to access those. The conductors, of course, that is the, the grounding conductors would again have to be no longer than necessary, avoid unnecessary bends. And they are usually connected to the grounding part of the system. If there is a grounded service conductor, it can also be utilized. But if you look at the connections in 242.50, most of them are to the grounding part of the system. And then there's a minimum size. Remember for surge protective devices, it was a 14 gauge. For surge arresting conductors, 242.52 says that the smallest conductor shall be a six gauge copper. And that wraps up article 242. So it's not a lot of content, but it's important content because these devices are critical at keeping our electrical infrastructure whole in times of uh, a lightning strike or in times of uh, line switching. They will prevent, prevent further damage to either our equipment or to the equipment that distributes the electrical system. And not only does that just finish up Article 242, overvoltage protection, it also covers our roundup of all of the articles of Chapter 2 of the NEC. So if there's something that uh, is of interest to you in previous episodes, we have covered all of the articles of both chapters one and two. And in the next episode, we're back to answering some of your questions. After that, we're going to look at chapter three, wiring methods and their applications. So if you found this episode on a site other than our website, please go to www.inw-training.com, inw-training.com. For any lecture notes, I'm going to have a couple of graphics up there for you that will highlight the difference between a surge protective device and a surge arrester. And I'll try to get them up in the next couple of days. Again, I wish to remind you of our monthly feature, that is code answers to questions from our listeners. And you can find the button to leave your code question right on the front page of our website. Until next time, please take care. Thank you so much for listening. This is your host, Frank Seiler, signing off from Spokane, Washington.